and welcome to Roast Into Black and White Television's The Review Show, where we are currently reviewing the black and white episodes of The Saint, which are unspooling on Talking Pictures Television, and you can catch them on Talking Pictures Encore, which is always a good idea. It's an excellent innovation, and apparently they've also introduced the red button, though it doesn't yeah. work if you've got BT. Duh. <laughs> So um, I'm hoping they'll fix that at some stage. Discussing four episodes. Yes, count them four. It's another bumper edition. Is my co-host, David Newell. Hello. Um, today, Dave, we're discussing The Good Medicine, The Invisible Millionaire, The High Fence, and Sophia. They're quite varied in their tone and um, adventure so the good medicine take it away dave right so the good medicine starts off in in paris it starts off at the paris fashion show um and simon templer has some very um quite groundbreaking uh, um, lines of dialogue such as um what do you suppose would happen if women use no makeup at all and face the world as nature intended them frightening thought isn't it uh, and it kind of escalates from there. And we, we have this idea that there is a um, lady who is the head of a fashion house or a makeup house. Um, Denise Dumont, um, played by Barbara Murray, who we have seen in the same episodes before. Um, and then we get a very weird kind of thing, which we've we've not seen much before in episode of the same, which is a flashback wobble wobble, flashback wobble wobble. Um, and we find out uh, kind of like Barbara Murray's character's origin story. Um, the fact that she worked um, with Philippe Dumont, um, played by Anthony Newlands. And she's a bit of a wrong and she's a bit of a grabber. Um, and a lot of the makeup products uh, that she sells, that she markets, um, are based upon um, Philippe's uh, formulas. And so it seems as if um, she's heading for a bit of a fall, um, and it's down to Simon Templer, um, Jean Marsh, who turns up um, as as well, um, a hilarious cameo from John Bennett as Count Alfredo, uh, to run um, what's known as a long con um, on her to uh, ensure that she has a bit of a comeuppance. Um, and we get the idea that uh, Simon is meant to be working within the fashion industry and has invested some money um, in a magical new formula. There's lots of jet setting from Paris to London and London to Paris again. Um, people pretending to be people that they're not. Uh, and it's all very sort of good natured. It's all sort of very good natured. Uh, but of course, Barbara Murray does get her comeuppance when she realises She's paid way over the odds for a formula that doesn't exist. Yes, and yet she's still quite charmed by Simon Templer. Again, yes, much like when we were talking um, the other week in The Lawless Lady, uh, when Dawn Adams, uh, even though she get being told time and time again by one of her cronies, Julian Glover, that Simon Templer's a wrong and oh, don't do this, um, uh, Simon Templer is able to be charming. He's not just a two-fisted action hero. Um, he can be charming and debonair. And in this, and he does it quite subtly, 
uh, alludes to this uh, um, allegedly fantastic anti-aging cream um, that she just can't get her hands oh can't get her hands on it's, it enough it's, it's not only anti-aging but it's anti mosquito or something isn't it? it is yes apparently she says that if you take this um and and rub it gently um you will be bug free uh, when you when you go out and about for a night on the continent that's right because gene marsh plays uh husband's sister i think yes it is, isn't that Obviously, there has been some estrangement in the family because mm -hmm. when she gets hired as Barbara Murray's aide, then there's obviously no recognition at all. But she's very efficient and she puts the insect repellent in Madame's bath. And then, of course, when Simon takes her for a picnic, she doesn't get bitten at all. No, she's bug free. And that's one of the reasons why she buys into this whole load of nonsense so yes finally she writes him a check mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the rights to this supposed anti-insect thing bug which off, meant, i think it's called bug be which is, i mean it's meant to be tablets isn't it because yes, there's this whole is. thing it's about pills a, a tablet for she can't believe that um that they're not going to go for a, um, a picnic and there's going to be loads of mosquitoes or those like cartoony comedy ants like used to be in Tom and Jerry, where they used to walk <laughs> off to the food stuff. Uh, and it doesn't happen. And that is is the convincing bit for her. And she just realises, wait a minute, I'm onto a fortune here. Because she feels that Simon is the is the slow one, doesn't realise what he's got his hands on. Because he does lay this breadcrumb trail of him saying, um, you know, it's not me who's created it. I'm just investing in it. I'm not really quite quite sure, but I've been told it's quite good. So he does a very, very subtle bit of psychology there. Yes, as the saint always does, remarkably, with these elaborate plans. Mm -hmm. Yes, Barbara Murray is, is he actually ex-husband or just estranged husband anyway? He's estranged it husband, Philippe, who is, is an, an honest pharmacologist uh, and um, makeup or... or Kind of an ungent designer, uh, but yeah, he feels that he's been exploited, and a lot of his, whether it's patents or inventions, uh, have just simply been taken by her. Though, to be fair, she created an international business. Yes, uh, she did. Um, I was left wondering, actually, apart from having sharp elbows, <laughs> what exactly she'd done wrong. Apparently, Philippe was a bit poorly and needed to go on a cruise. Yes. And that's what the money uh, was meant for. But, yes, I mean, a lack of generosity was possibly the, as far as we know, was the most egregious sin that she had yeah, engaged she's, in. She's not as bad as the, the um, fitness and makeup designer. Um, Vera Miles in that episode of Columbo, because as well as potentially being a ruthless makeup businesswoman, uh, she also clubs Martin Sheen to death with a microscope. Yes, I mean that's not good management practice. That's not cricket. It's not good. It's not good HR. So yeah, in this in this instance, the family, Jean Marsh and Anthony Newland, just feel that they've been a little hard done to. I suppose you could say that um, Philippe does 
come across as a bit stodgy and reluctant to uh, engage. He's not motivated by money or, or ambition, is he? No, he's he, he's just, you know, he's feeling very poorly. Maybe he's even feeling a little bit sad for himself. We don't know. But Yes, it could be. I mean, who knows what chemicals he's been mixing up. It actually might be an industrial disease. <laughs> but it's just felt that the, the person at the centre of this the person to which blame can be appropriate position is indeed Barbara Murray. As she was the other week in an episode, she was um, again uh, in an episode of The Saint, and, and we knew that she was wrong in that. Let's look at Barbara Murray's long career. Uh, includes 21 episodes of The Palaces in 1974, elsewhere Jason King, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Department S, 32 episodes of The Power Game, loads of single plays, Sergeant Cork, which you may be familiarising yourself with. Um, do you mean this Sergeant Cork? One of my that Sergeant Cork. One of my lovely birthdays. And what I can do, I'm looking at achieving a balance of I'm being able to watch episodes of Sergeant Cork whilst reading the fantastic biography of Wilson Keppel and Betty, <laughs> an award-winning book apparently um, for the title alone, uh, which was dubbed. Too Naked for the Nazis. Oh, yes, I've heard about that. That's um, that, that sounds excellent. When you get to episode 10, I think it is, of uh, the first series of Sergeant Cork, that will give rise to a whole new showcase episode about the use and pitfalls of false facial hair. All right, OK, so episode 10, that's a lot one to nine. So is that the case of the soldier's rifle? Yes. It is. And there is a rather magnificent scene where an actor improvises his way out of a makeup malfunction. No. I just like your commentary on that. <laughs> oh, look forward to that. I don't think Barbara Murray's in that, but she certainly knew how to wear a period frock. There's our old friend, Bill Narge, who has one Avengers point. Anthony Newlands. Um, has two points and three saints. Uh, we saw him as a priest in, um, I think it was the counterfeit, count, not the counterfeit, the charitable countess. I always get those two mixed up. There's a lot of countesses in the saint. He was in 32 episodes of Crime of Passion, one Doom Watch, The Web of Fear, and one Maygray. Gene Marsh, four saints. 17 episodes of The Informer, um, I think she played Ian Hendry's girlfriend, the third man, the Twilight Zone. So she oh. did have a bit of a transatlantic career. She played a humanoid robot called Alicia. And I presume they wanted an English actress to give that uncanny valley cut glass accent that all humanoid robots have. Um, and obviously um, very famously created, um, co-created. Upstairs, downstairs. With Eileen Atkins, and she appeared in 54 episodes. So she has 103 screen credits in all. Now, John Bennett, he has two points. It's the second of his four saints. I think he played somebody from the Middle East previously. And what a gift for physical comedy. Yeah, he does. He is the comic relief in this as Count Alfredo with an outrageous accent and costume. And he's the idea that he is um, Barbara Murray's kind of like um, right hand man. Um, the person to to investigate as to whether Simon Templer does have a legitimate claim. The, um, the, the bug, bug be gone tablet. Uh, but he does. He ends up a prisoner um, captured. Um, but captured in a really nice way. 
because he, he's just locked in a cellar room with someone to look after him. Ah, but Gene Marsh bumps him on the head with something. Yeah, you kind of had that coming. It's that expression where he gets hit and does the most wonderful surprise and then pratfall. The only thing missing in that is is the tweeting of small birds. That was a gift. I would say almost that was the highlight of the episode. Elsewhere, we have Bruce Montague, no points, but he was in The Baron, 11 episodes of Crane, two episodes of Dimensions of Fear, where a space research centre near a sleepy English village is threatened by an otherworldly force. Well, that doesn't sound like it's going to go well. I don't think it does. I don't think it's like Village of the Damned, but it could well be. Gene Rowland, one point. Man in a suitcase, the Baron Age Man and another saint. Norman Morris, one point. Six saints, Interpol calling Danger Man and the prisoner. Anthony Lang, three points. Callan and Doctor Who, mostly uncredited. Roy Lansford, one and a half points among many other appearances, though his name didn't tend to appear at the end. And Leonard Llewellyn, one point, 21 Saints, The Invisible Man, Danger Man, Gideon's Way, The Human Jungle, 39 uncredited credits. That's the good medicine, which was, as you say, rather good natured. No one died. Uh, not even the saint's friend, the journalist who put him onto the whole caper in the first place. Yes, yeah, um, normally <clears throat> anyone who who comes up, even in that strip cartoon, you know, we have that idea of oh god, he's been ew, he's been killed. Yes, it's kind of um, death free. Not the same for the Invisible Millionaire, which has tropes, including the friend that he bumps into. Um, yes, a woman who's working as a secretary. He bumps into at the stock market by chance, and of course. When she gets suspicious about this particular accident, uh, calls on the saint. So can you sum this up, Dave? Right. So the invisible millionaire does concern a someone who comes across as a rather ruthless businessman with Marvin Chase. And he's a go-getting investment business opportunist. He's got a wife. He's got a daughter. Um, he's got a rather weak-willed brother, Jim, played by Nigel Stock. It transpires uh, that there is a terrible uh, motor car accident in which Marvin Chase is burnt horribly. And the worst still is his right hand man, Bertrand Tamblin, played by Mark Eaton, um, horribly dies in the in the accident. And then in a little bit of chicanery, a little bit of medical chicanery, um, because the accident has happened near his home, rather than going to hospital, um, Marvin is um, taken home to recover, despite the fact that he's, he's got bandages all over his head, bandages all over his hands. And um, then Marvin seems to to go against those those business know-hows uh, that he seemed to know so well. And this is where Nora Prescott, played by um, the very first Bond girl, Eunice Grayson, uh, kind of thinks that maybe there's something going wrong. Um, and, of course, calls in the saint. Um, and then, unfortunately, old Nora gets gets knocked off. But by whom? Who is killing whom? And this is, I suppose, one of those country house mysteries. Could we fit it into that category? Because um, there's lots of running around a big house. There's not only that, but there's actually, it's almost like a rugby commentary describing the setup that there's a scrum and where people are, uh, or a cricket match, there's so-and-so at third leg 
whatever it is, Jane Asher lists where everyone is in the house. Rosemary and Uncle Jim are in the lounge. Dr. Quintus is upstairs with Daddy. And servants? Cook and Thompson are in the kitchen. What about Thompson? Reliable? Absolutely. Uh, Jane Asher um, playing almost like the same role and almost saying some of the same lines um, as she did in The Noble Sportsman. I think at the time she'd have been about 16. 16 or 17, it would have been about the same time she'd have been doing Mask of the Red Death and possibly going on a blind date with Paul McCartney. But she is at the centre of things. There's also a very untrustworthy doctor, um, Dr. Howard Quintus. I wouldn't trust anyone with a name like that. Um, some other suspects, um, a couple of more murders. Uh, and uh, then it turns out... Um, what the big surprise twist ending is. And we, we kind of do suspect it, but it's very cleverly done. There's plenty of room for punch-ups. I quite like the bit where Simon Templer hands the gun to the butler and says, do you know how to use these uh, <laughs> yes. things? He said, I had some experience during the war, sir. That's what you want from your domestic servants, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And because he, he is asked whether um, whether Franklin can be trusted, Jane Asher just describes him being, yes, he's absolutely solid. The sort of butler you'd want in your trench. Mm. There's quite a few tropes, of course. The old friend who meets a sticky end. Yes. I mean, he just, when he said, oh, I'll meet you in the boathouse, he would say, no, don't go don't, to the boathouse. Don't. It's like one of those things where I can't possibly tell you over the phone. Why? Why not? Um, to interpretive dance. No, you've got to tell me over the phone. You've been murdered otherwise. And that's because Nigel stops looking around. He's extraordinarily free with bits of information about overhearing conversations and relaying mm -hmm. them uh, to Catherine Blake's character. I mean, the bit in the boathouse where the saint discovers the secretary's body and then is shot at, it's pretty clear who's shooting at him, isn't it? Yes. Not, that sort of spoils the surprise where at the end he removes the bandages and it's you! Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, we 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 kind of been led down that um, that route. I think it's suspicious that he didn't even get taken to his local cottage hospital. Rather, um, Doctor Quintus insisted that um, because of his injuries, um, he should be treated at home rather than like a proper hospital. But then it's a case of who's actually in on it and who's not in on it. So is. Is the brother, Nigel Sock, in on it? Is the wife in on it? Is is the daughter, lovely Jane Asher, um, is she in on it? Is it? Another situation is that there's always a wicked stepmother or the stepmother who might be wicked. In The Noble Sportsman, <laughs> it was the stepmother almost so, went astray, yes, yeah. but didn't. And in this case, the wicked stepmother has become embroiled with the trusted right-hand man, for somebody who is, it's claimed is extremely meticulous when it comes to detail, it seems to be quite casual about standing by the window, having a fag. Yeah, he's he's a bit sloppy, uh, and he, it begins to unravel pretty quickly once the saint has turned up. You know, it moves at a fair pace. Uh, like I said it's one of the one of the country house mysteries uh, in which you you just have people running in and out of big rooms. It works quite well, and there's some. And there's some lovely familiar faces there. There are. I mean, it, it does have one of those O-level questions. Ellen, how long does it take a car travelling at 60 miles an hour to go half a mile? 30 seconds. Would you agree with that, Mrs Chase? I'll assume you do. It's a fairly elementary mathematical problem. And then why is there a nine-minute gap between 
passing the postman and then the crash happening because the, somebody's smashed the clock. Sort of mass question, I failed. Um, he asks that question direct to Jane Asher, and she's able to answer it. I was very impressed by her mental arithmetic skills. Yes, I'm sure she got better O-levels than I did. <laughs> um, all right, let's look at the cast. Catherine Blake is probably best known as the governor in within these walls. <gasps> um, eight armchair theatres and other plays, Public Eye, The Gold Robbers, The Baron. One episode of Undermind. Now, what do you know about that, Dave? Undermind? I've I've never heard of it. Is it a lost series? It's a lost series, as far as I know. I don't, I don't know if it's completely lost. It's not as in a verb. It's undermind, as in the brain. It's oh, all right. one word. Oh, undermind. Right. Is it about someone who is um, perceived to be going insane? But, of course, it's those around her who are driving her insane as part of an elaborate plot to get their inheritance. No, it's personnel officer Drew Harriet returns to England after working in Australia to discover his brother behaving oddly to the distress of his sister-in-law, Anne. Investigating together, they discover that a disembodied alien force is using high-frequency signals to brainwash people, including Drew's brother, into committing subversive acts as a prelude to a full-scale invasion. Together, Drew and Anne battle to stop the acts of sabotage while trying to alert the authorities to the danger. I wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have guessed that as a plot. That wasn't even in my top ten. Catherine Blake also appeared in Dimensions of Fear, which we mentioned just a moment ago. But... And Dimensions of Fear, it's that otherworldly force again. There was a lot of it about in the 60s. Ah, uh, I hate um, those otherworldly forces. It was come round at the wrong time. They're inconvenient. You're probably too young to remember Counter-Strike, which had John Finch in it, which was another set of aliens trying to... It was two sets of aliens trying to battle over Earth because of its strategic position. Counter-Strike ran into some issues, and several of these ran into issues. I mean, obviously, you had quite a mass um, from a few years earlier. But, of course, there's the Invaders in the American series. So it's a lot of kind of body-snatcher-type premises in series. I'm not sure how many uh, episodes of Undermined there are and whether it still exists but uh, quite an interesting bit of 60s paranoia there <laughs> michael goodliffe on 131 credits including the invisible man interpol calling ghost squad man of the world five episodes of callan randall and hopkirk jason king six episodes of judge d as the eponymous chinese judge i think a little bit of makeup might have been yes used there not, yeah may not be a um yes because judge Judge D and the Monastery Murders was a TV movie in the 70s, um, but thankfully, uh, where they cast Chinese actors. Oh, good. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so it shows how progress can happen, however slowly. Um, and, of course, he has the all-important Avengers point. He probably would have gone on to grace many more shows had he not died at the age of 62. Nigel Stock, well, what can you say? He's a star. He has two points. He's probably best known, though that's a tough one with such a long career, as Dr. Watson in the BBC's Sherlock Holmes series um, during the 60s. 
He was in pretty much everything else. Overseas Press Club exclusive, Police Surgeon, Danger Man and The Prisoner, Bottom Brooks, a series based on the novel by Thomas Mann in the days when the BBC used to do adaptations of classic European literature. Um, Adam Adamant, Doom Watch, 77 episodes of The Doctors as Dr Thomas Owens. And then 61 episodes of Owen M.D., where his character mysteriously became singular rather than plural Owens. What's going on there? I met Nigel Stock one time. Yeah, he was um, the year below us uh, at at drama school at Ivy House. Um, I was still around for, for their graduation. And I went along. And what you used to be able to do is each year you used to be able to select or the students would, could put forward someone that they'd like um, to come along to to present um, the certificates. And at the time, I think it was Emma, Emma Winrow, was going out with Nigel Stock's son. And so they said, hey, would you like Nigel Stock um, to come along? Uh, because he's been in The Great Escape and um, he's been in The Lost Continent um, and he's been in Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear. Um, and so, yeah, he he came along and presented his certificates. Lovely old gent. Very, very amiable. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I like to hear, that you kind of get that sort of generally benign hmm. sense from him. He was a bit of a, a shiftless um, <laughs> He is in this, brother, yes. <laughs> the Invisible Millionaire. So he had range. He did play Winston Churchill a couple of times in the series about Ord Wingate. Oh, right, yes, yeah. Two old Barry Foster was Ord Wingate, I think. Um, back in the day um, when you used to be able to say the word chindits and not get any backlash or, or sniggers. <laughs> yes. I, what The interesting thing was that they did manage to do the Burmese jungle by draping long bits of green cloth around the studio it was kind of very stylized it worked because uh, you know he, he just bought into it that's nigel stock so um glad to hear he uh, meets with your approval uh mm. jane asher she's only as we've mentioned just been in the noble sportsman uh, around this time she was in mask of the red death um still an icon yes eunice grayson one point another saint to come danger man plenty of stuff and the first bond lady she is the one who, who says those iconic lines, and I admire your luck, Mr. And then Sean Bond says, lights his fag, and says, Bond, James Bond. And the idea is, when the franchise first started, is that she would play the same character. The opening of each film, kind of like a, a lovely lady that he somehow never manages to get it on with. Um, so she appears in Doctor No and in From Russia With Love, but then sort of disappeared and, and the idea was dropped. Shame. Yeah, it is really. Though it's hard to imagine how she might have appeared in some of those opening bits where Rog skis off a mountainside. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that would have been yeah, that's a big ask. Yes, that, that would have been a, a, a tricky scene to write. Basil Dignam, another saint to come, 186 credits, which include <laughs> Robin Hood, Interpol Calling, Ghost Squad, No Hiding Place, Steptoe and Son. Both Danger Man and The Prisoner, five episodes of Gideon's Way, Adam Adamant, The Foresight Saga, The Champions, Man in a Suitcase, The Strange Report. He was Governor Wang in Judge D. Again, some makeup required, I fear. <laughs> Randlin Hopkirk, Department S, UFO, The Persuaders, The Adventurer, and The Protectors, plus one and a half Precious Avengers points. 
So, you know, a pillar of the acting community. Mark Eden, two points out of 104 credits, very well-known face on television, early on appearance in the TV series of Quatermass and the Pet, three armchair theatres. He played Marco Polo in Doctor Who's famously missing, believed, lost episodes, the nine episodes of Catch Hand, which was an early series about the building trade. Sounds a bit like our Friedersane pet. Nine out of ten episodes are believed to be lost. Thanks, BBC. 27 episodes of The Newcomers. Elsewhere, Man in a Suitcase, The Prisoner, The Troubleshooters, Crown Court, and 226 episodes of Coronation Street. Wasn't he the menacing and sinister and ghosting Alan Bradley? Was he the one who got run over by a tram? Yes, and not before time. A fitting end, uh, an iconic moment. Charles Morgan, another familiar face, 122 credits, including two Avengers points, loads of stuff, but famous for 44 episodes of Sergeant Cork. <gasps> you mean... As Cork's indulgent boss. Do you mean this Sergeant Cork? That Sergeant Cork. He took over from another Saint regular, Arnold Diamond, I Then there's John Gabriel, 144 credits, Vendetta, The Baron, Danger Man, Third Man and many others. Ian Ainsley, one point. His screen career coincides neatly with the Golden Age, which of course is 1956, The Suez Crisis, to 1974, The Three Day Week. Frank Atkinson had 200 screen credits, including Mr Pastry's Pet Shop. Right, that sounds quite menacing. Do you remember Mr Pastry? Mr Pastry keeps being heavily trailed on Talking Pictures TV. Richard Hearn, I think, who played it. Yeah. And they had a charity cricket game at like the tail end of the 50s, um, I think. And Richard Pastry was, well, Richard Hearn, Mr Pastry, was doing a lot of the comedic running around. I think Tommy Cooper was taking part as well. I've read somewhere that actually he was offered the role of Doctor Who after Patrick Troughton, but wanted to play it as Mr. Pastry. Oh, right. Um, And so they went with John Pertwee. A wise move, I think. Yes. Michael McKevitt, one point, but uncredited, as is most of his work, as was Roy Beck, who was two points, 13 Saints, Danger Man, The Champions, and many feature films. Billy Cornelius, we've mentioned before, top-rated boxer, fighter ranger, usually played henchmen or heavies and has one Avengers point. And when we talk about heavies, there's a slight change of pace. So we move from the country house murder mystery premise to the high fence, which sounds like it should involve horses, but actually we're talking about criminal slang here, aren't we? Yes, there is a uh, mysterious character that is known throughout London um, as the high fence who will deal and dabble uh, in uh, kind of like anything, jewels and anything. And um, it starts off with Rog, uh, Simon going uh, round to the house of um, Gabby Forrest, the actress, played by Suzanne Lloyd, who we met the other week, very confusingly, was also um, opposite Sue Lloyd. Um, Please don't get the two mixed up. Uh, That would make it kind of like very, very difficult. Um, So, they are meant to be going to the theatre and they drive away in their trendy Volvo. But we notice the music sting as a sinister Ford Zephyr parked nearby. Um, and in the Ford Zephyr, um, there's a very sweaty looking Harry Taub, who we've seen before. 
um, and also Dyson Lovell um, as his partner. At first, I thought the way it was lit, I thought it was actually Eddie Howe, the um, Newcastle United manager. But no, it's Dyson Lovell. And they are going to be breaking into the house to steal um, Miss Forrest's lovely jewellery. There is also a sinister another character hanging around, Peter Jeffrey, who seems to be up to no good, and makes a telephone call to say that they're in. However, we soon begin to realise that Gabby is a bit ditzy and has forgotten the theatre tickets. They have to turn around, go back to the house, and obviously at the house, they discover that there's a robbery taking place, there's a bit of a punch-up, and that kind of sets the plot uh, in motion, that there is this, this mysterious person called the High Fence, um, and investigating the crime is the very go-getting and um, quite straightforward Inspector Pryor, played by James Villiers. We also have the treat of Inspector um, Paul Eustace Teal um, turn up. Um, and then it's kind of like um, it goes a little bit panto because Gabby Forrest then has to dress up as a waitress at the Cozy Corner Cafe to track down a possible contact of the high fence. Um, and that's quite, quite, quite amiable. But meanwhile, Roger's involved in um, the A plot in which there's murders aplenty. Um, Harry Taub gets killed. Um, Dyson Lovell gets killed. All of the hands of nasty old Peter Jeffrey. Um, and almost um, Bob Stryker, who is an insurance claims adjuster investigating the case, former um, cop, uh, he almost gets killed as well. It takes a savage beating. Um, and then we, we start to get towards the solution and the big reveal of who the high fence actually is. Stanley Meadows' character is someone that the saint has met before yeah. when he was a policeman. And I think this is a trope. It's not that an old acquaintance or old friend gets killed, but... Spoiler alert, mm -hmm. it's an old acquaintance is trying to work with the saint supposedly to solve the crime, only to be revealed as the Mr. Big. Oh, you mean like Douglas Wilmer the other week with his diamond smuggling? Mm. And, of course, the saint is too clever by half, which mm. they should know. You can't you pull don't... the wool over the eyes of the saint. No, indeed. So Stanley Meadows was in Marcia the last time where he played the footballer husband who'd been in put in a wheelchair by a car crash. And he's one of those very familiar faces uh, on TV. It is kind of a return to the Leslie Charteris stories where the saint is dealing with the dregs of the London underworld. It's a bit like the man who was lucky. Um, yes. And, yeah. um, and various that, others. There's, there's a fair degree of killing. And for a while, because of his very blunt approach to policing, I don't know how many of the viewers may have thought that maybe the high fence could be James Villiers, the cop investigating the case. Yes, because he's arrogant, supposedly a stickler for the rules, yeah. not flexible, blinkered in his attitude. Yeah, doesn't like the saint poking his nose in. Doesn't really get on with the uh, inspector... Claude Eustace Teal. No, either, like that. Whereas Ivor Dean's character is given more opportunity for that kind of rather wry sideways look because he has to deal with an idiot and would rather trust Simon Templar than his idiot subordinate. And then thanks to 
Suzanne Lloyd's amazing performance as an Irish waitress. To be sure. Uh, this Begora. Simon Templer tracks the man in the check coat to his office and then is about to surprise the high fence when Peter Jeffrey has spotted Gabriel Forrest's picture in a newspaper. I know. Um, and... what, what, what the chances? There's a very odd line of dialogue because when Peter Jeffrey gets the drop on the saint who was barged into Reginald Beckworth's office to say, you're going to the police and we're going to take those jewels with us. Peter Jeffrey readily admits that he's already killed two people, um, Harry Town and Dyson Lovell. So why he doesn't kill the saints? I don't know. He's got the ideal opportunity. You know, he's already in the hole for two murders. I suppose there's the difficulty of getting rid of Roger Moore's body. Yes, um, yeah, 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 it could be that. They do work out a way then of, right, we're going to, um, we're going to take you somewhere where you can be killed. Yes, drop through one of those trap doors that leads directly into the Thames, which is... Were they a big design the... feature of, of flats along... Um, along the Thames, you know, those ones, you know, when you're heading down towards Greenwich and things like that. There's certainly a feature of the Hellfire Club in Touch of Brimstone in the Avengers, mm. um, where Peter Wingard, through his own fault, tries to whiplash Mrs. Peel and manages to hit the lever, which oh. releases the trap door, and he plunges to his watery doom. I think there's also some of that in feature films in, yeah there's um, one in uh, Manchu, isn't there yeah there's there's one in uh, one of the basil rathbone sherlock holmes ones where you you hear someone foolishly running down a corridor because they think that the trap door is closed but old sherlock he switched the controls so it's actually open um and professor moriarty or the titular villain plunges to their doom i don't think it's the fall that would kill you it's probably the pollution back then that would get you. Who knows what lurks in the uh, filthy Thames. Ooh. Obviously, quite a regular design feature in buildings along the river that runs through London's capital. Picking up your warehouse floor and you just think, well, there's not a carpet that I can sweep it under. And it's going to be really fussy to put it in the dustpan. I'll just open the trap door and I'll sweep it into the Thames. Anyway, there's a big punch up and then... Teal arrives and then gets taken to the theatre by Gabrielle and Simon as a gesture of thanks and appreciation for yes, saving the his neck. Yes, the jewels are returned, aren't they? The jewels are returned. Yes, so it's all smiles again, despite the rather unpleasant thuggishness that's gone on. Yeah, despite the, the, the previous deaths, there's a mixed gang. There's Harry Taub and his dowdy wife, Claire Kelly. And Harry Taub, who I mentioned before, I did see on stage in... Um, the original West End production of Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I was amazed to think, hey, it's the chef who's in that sequence in pattern, Lost for Glory, and George C. Scott chews him out. It's the same actor. Um, so, yeah, Peter Jeffrey is uh, Quincy, and he's the gun-toting villain. Um, like I said, also kills Dyson Lovell. Um, Reginald Beckwith, I know this is another trope that you've you sort of put forward, Guy, is that within a criminal gang, there's a small, weedy, cowardly one. <laughs> and Reginald Beckworth, he fulfills, some of you may remember him, um, as the very strange psychic um, or medium um, in Night of the Demon, amongst others. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was a very familiar face, 120 screen credits, and surely would have been 
in more, but he died at the age of 56 in 1965. There you go, no age at all. No, no. Jimmy Villiers, one Avengers point, um, 128 screen credits, elsewhere the Baron Man in the Suitcase, and of course his distant ancestor, King Charles II, in the first uh, Churchills. Yeah, he uh, obviously always had kind of like a very regal bearing um, and did seem to be better off playing the um, upper class end of the social spectrum, perhaps to really good effect, uh, as the dunder-headed uncle in The Amazing Mr. Blunder. Mm, I think he was quite good at playing dunderheads. I, <laughs> I assume he was quite sharp in real life. Suzanne Lloyd, again, only a few weeks after Luella. Um, of course, she's Canadian, one Avengers point and six saints and all the rest. Stanley Meadows... I said we last saw in Marcia quite a while ago now. Familiar face, one Avengers point in 1967. This is his second of three Saints, but eight appearances in Dixon and Doc Green. Two of the Fen Street Gang, Persuaders, Randall and Hopkirk, eight armchair theatres and two Wednesday plays, and 29 episodes of the early Coronation Street. Harry Tower, one point, TV regular. What else can you say about him? Hugely long career. Dyson Lovell, one point, one saint, elsewhere, Moonstrike, Maygray, Gideon's Way, before becoming a film and TV producer. Hey, there you go. Um, um, I, was, yeah. I thought you were going to say he actually is Eddie Howe, the Newcastle manager. That <laughs> <laughs> too blonde for Eddie Howe, I think. Um, <laughs> I am assured by my cousin, who had regular seats at Bournemouth because her boss owned the club, <laughs> that uh, Eddie Howe was... A really nice man. Genuinely uh, nice man. Absolutely. And if if you had to choose an Eddie Howe lookalike, another choice could be Alan Tracy from Thunderbirds. <laughs> I think Eddie Howe is more animated on the touchline. <laughs> Claire Kelly, one point. Uh, Ghost Squad, Maygrave, Vendetta, The Expert, Zed Cars. Her career stretched into the 1990s. The great Peter Jeffrey, a pillar of the screen who could do menacing or comedy. Three and a half Avengers points amongst his 169 credits. Yeah. Adam Adamant, numerous single plays, Two Saints, The Strange Report, Doctor Who, constantly on the box and a good thing too. Hazel Hughes, who we last saw in a work of art elsewhere. The Strange Report, two Wednesday plays, ITV plays of the week and one Human Jungle. Howard Coyne, two points. Uh, Leonard Clewellyn again, one point. 21 Saints. Pauline Chamberlain again, two points. 22 Saints, Alan Meacham, three points, Ernie Priest, last seen in The Noble Sportsman, seven Saints in total, Fred Stroud, half a point, four Saints, three Danger Mans, Interpol Call and Ghost Squad, 74 uncredited credits. Um, director James Hell, now eight episodes of The Avengers, unfortunately one of them was epic, Two new Avengers, uh, and we last saw his work in Starring the Saints, and he's got another one to come. And the interesting thing about this is that there's a fair bit of filming of actors in the street. It's quite rare for the Saints, isn't it? Yes, yeah, quite a bit of, you know, it looks like proper location work as well, not backstage or, or backlot um, work. Um, James said, of course, kind of local lad made good because he used to work over at the Bradford Theatre, Bradford Playhouse. This is a plaque up on the wall outside very famous um picture film that you directed born free there you go right and yesterday's episode because we're recording this on monday the 
21st of November, and that is Sophia. Yes, we're back to one of our name titles. We've had um, quite a few episodes where it has been named, uh, usually after the, the female lead, but in some instances, like the one with Claire um, Samantha Reger, um, it's actually named after a dead actress. <gasps> um, but in this one, there's kind of like some groundbreaking work here which we'll come to a little bit later. But the plot is the saint is on holiday in Greece uh, and he's kind of hooked up with his old friend, Professor Hamish Grant. You then begin to worry for Professor Hamish Grant's life because he is an old friend of the saint. Are you an archaeologist too? Heaven forbid. No, I'm just an old friend of Professor Grant's. Uh, but thankfully, he sees it all the way through to the end of the episode. But at the hotel where the professor is stopping... Um, there seems to be some family disharmony um, in the Arnitas household where Stavros, the dad, is trying to keep his, his wayward daughter, Sophia, who also works there, on the straight and narrow. She has some very peculiar business ideas, such as making the locals pay for their drinks and settle their tabs, which I don't think is a bad idea at all. Um, but then up rocks a distant cousin. Um, Aristides, played by Oliver Reed. And we know that Oliver Reed is perhaps up to no good because earlier, in the establishing scene, we've seen him with a camera load of money shoot someone called Joe Martin. Joe Martin survives, by the way. Um, and then it becomes kind of like a game of cat and mouse. And what's the fun is, is trying to figure out at what stage the revenge plot or the long con, which um, Simon Templar is a master of, is put in motion. Um, you know, who's in on it? Um, are there really mountaintop bandits? Um, has Sophia really been kidnapped by ruthless individuals? Um, does Stavros have the fortune to buy his new vineyard? And does Aristides uh, kind of have to realise that, oh, wait a minute, this angry local mob, I'm going to have to fess up the cash. Uh, so it's all it's all good quality fun. At the beginning, it's quite tense, and you sort of think this could, at any moment, mm. tip over, go horribly wrong. And as you say, Professor Grant is an old friend of Simon Templar, and you sort of think, really? And then you start to get even more worried when he discovers this solid gold statuette and seems to be quite happy telling all sorts of people how valuable it is, mm -hmm. and then it's locked in the safe. There's quite a menacing Oliver Reed. There's a lot of seething villagers. There's... <laughs> Who um, seem to have an inexhaustible supply of weaponry. I suspect they did, because obviously the war is still a very raw experience. Yes, um, so hence, hence the Sten guns. And as they say, every single member of the village shot traitors which probably reduced the population <laughs> quite considerably at that rate stavros has fallen out with half the village and the other lot get free drinks at his place and he's a very proud man he is he is he's uh he once owned a vineyard which he's forced to sell his his business plan now is that maybe he can give over the hotel um to sophia and her betrothed nico uh, so they have a business. And also he has this idea of buying and returning back to the soil to get another vineyard. Which annoys his daughter because she knows that they're completely broke. And he mm. boasts to Aristides that he's got plenty of money and they're doing all right. I'm still quite interested how 
both Joe Martin in the scene, the establishing scene at the beginning, mm. before he gets shot in the arm, knows to go straight for the camera. And the saint, when he's searching Aristide's room, goes straight for the camera to find the $15,000. It's not the first thing I would choose. Because <laughs> I always get sensitive about cameras, because if you open them, you expose film, and you don't want to ruin some of his holiday pictures. Simon works a switcheroo. He's obviously teed Sophia up to disappear and play cards with Professor Grant, while Oliver Reed's character nearly gets lynched. And you sort of think, oh, yes, this could become quite unpleasant. Oliver Reed does turn out to be, instead of the really evil thug that you think he might be, just to be a blustering fool and quite cowardly. He is, yes. And he he gets his just comeuppance. He does um, have to hand over his money. And then as insurance to ensure that he's not going to kind of have any payback for that, uh, the saint has arranged for Joe Martin to turn up looking for Oliver Reed. And uh, Oliver Reed then scampers. He uses the back door of the hotel and he's and he's off and he's, he's away. How could so evil a man suddenly become so generous? Well, you see, I have a very good influence on people. I really do. That's why they call me the saint. Um, it does look like a charming hotel. I think it's a set that we've seen redressed many, many times before. But this one we can tell is in Greece because it's got um, ads up from the tax of brandy. Uh, and it's got a beaded curtain as well. Uh, so we, we know that we, we are on the continent. Um, but the big thing about this episode, big thing, and it's, it's quite groundbreaking in many ways, is, Guy, who directed it? I think... This might be the first time that Rog himself steps behind the camera. He does. And I think way, 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 way back um, when we first started this, we said one of the things about The Saint, because it had that longevity and it had that lifespan where it allowed certain things to be explored and certain things to, to occur, it may be one of those first TV shows in which the star was allowed to direct. Yes, and of course, he's already an established film and TV actor, so he kind of knows how things work. Knows where to point the camera. There was that incident where he was hiding in the tree, overhearing Wolf Morris and Oliver Reed discussing things, and then the saint kicks something. Yeah, foolish. And then you do the reaction shot of the saint Lit by moonlight mm. in the tree trunk, Oliver Reed obviously decides not to pursue things any further and uh, ignores it. I don't think that's. I don't think you're really in that tree on that <laughs> set or location or wherever it is, Simon. I think that's a pickup. But yeah, he does that quite well. All the episodes I think I've come across, he did nine saints and two persuaders. Mm, yeah. If he'd wanted to pursue it. But if you're Roger Moore, you're obviously much happier and going to make lots more money being in front of the camera mm. than behind it. Yes, it's one of the things that he could well have done more of. Robert Banks Stewart wrote the script. Mr. Shoestring um, himself. <laughs> yes. It's his second for the saint and... He was responsible for the well-meaning mayor, and he wrote scripts for 56 shows. Um, <laughs> Oliver Reed has got no points, but it's his second saint where he played a more 
brutal thug. King of the um, beggars. He had a, he's nearly had his arm broken. He should have broken. That's him. right. That way he wouldn't have been able to come back as a Greek gangster. Aristides. And what did you think of uh, Oliver Reed's American accent? It apparently he it does say um, that he he did like to mimic people um, in in real life, just as like a a, a cocktail party fun piece. Uh, so as to whether it's actually based on someone um, that he may have come across, I don't know. I don't know. But what we've got is is that maybe you've got that charming thing that even though it's like the early sixties, um, perhaps um, the Arnettas family. Um, have not heard very many American accents. So they, they just think, oh, I guess that's what Americans sound like. Indeed. And um, they always assume that all Americans are rich. Yes. But just to show how actors can rise up the billing, um, he had two appearances in The Invisible Man, one as a cafe patron and the other as man at roulette table, both huh? uncredited. <laughs> Would he have been sat alongside like Alan Bennett? We still haven't solved that mystery. Yes, yeah, so was, was Alan Bennett at the roulette table? I'm <laughs> not entirely sure. Anyway, Oliver Reed went on to have a decent career, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Now, sadly, Imogen Hassel, who was one point, Three Saints and elsewhere, appearances in Moonstrike, The Wednesday Play, Troubleshooters, uh, Champions, Persuaders, Jason King and others. And I think this happens to um, a lot of actresses, is they get into their 30s, uh, which would have been the 70s for her. And uh, the parts seemed to have dried up and she became depressed and ended up taking an overdose at the age of 38. So uh, that's a great shame. Obviously, it's she's not the only person to have done that in wider life, but particularly in the acting profession. And I'd like to think that nowadays that help is available for yes, people. Yes, there is the, the outlet and the opportunity to to sort of discuss those issues, yeah. Yeah, because we know that acting can be quite a stressful thing because it's uh, so unpredictable. Elsewhere, Tommy Duggan. Yes, um, Davros um, Arnetas. First of Two Saints, William Tell, The Third Man, Interpol Calling, uh, Vendetta, four episodes of Dixon of Doc Green, Ten Newcomers, and Father Mm. Ted. Oh, right. Well done. So with a name like Tommy Duggan and the number of roles that he played, which had an Irish connection, I would suspect that... There is some Irish heritage there. And naturally, you get to play a Greek hotel owner. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a natural extension. John Wentworth as the professor, two Sergeant Corks, no hiding place, one prisoner, three Callans, 33 episodes of the main chance, the Z cars, the Oneidian line, Ripping Yarns, among many others, the most important of which are two Avengers points. Oh. Hal Galili, which is an interesting name. I'm not quite sure what its origins are. Five Saints, quite a few single plays. Orlando, Department S, Jason King, seven episodes of Reg Varney and one Avengers point. Right, OK. Um, I also, um, one of his uh, famous bits is um, as the three dastardly crew people in um, Warlords of Atlantis. Yes, he is someone who could play a heavy, but yes. I doubt if he played heavy when he was working with uh, Reg Varney. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what they'd have there. Who else have we got? Wolf Morris, two saints, but three Avengers points. I think he would have been a shoo-in for the Peter Lorre story. 
Um, he's got a great character name in this, Gorgo. <laughs> <laughs> Which is usually uh, ascribed to large monstrous lizards that emerge (laughs) from the sea in British movies. He was in Vendetta, The Champions, Department S, Jason King, Closh Merle, Doctor Who, The Abominable Snowman. And incidentally, he was in the scripted film, I think it's by Nigel Neal, The Abominable Snowman from 1957. All right, yes. He seems to have played a lot of Orientals. If you can get away with it, and I imagine people did back then, then do it. 122 credits. Um, so, you know, a really substantial career. Is he in Beasts as well? Which was scripted by Nigel Neal? I think, I think he's in the, might be the scary one about the dolphin, I think. Which is really scary, which is quite quite distressing. Is that called Baby? Oh no, Baby's the one set with Simon McCorkendale and that is set in um, like that country house that they've bought. Um, and that that one is really really scary. But the the one about the dolphin, I think Martin Shaw is in it as well. Yes, he's in Buddy Boy. I remember that. That is quite unsettling. It is. Um, his character is quite unsettling as well. Yes, because he you begin to realise that he's he's overstepped the mark, and mm. um, what he's involved in is a little bit more sinister than first thought. I think it ends in a bathroom, doesn't it? Yeah. Andreas Malandrinos, one point, four states, and I'm not quite sure who he was playing. In the cast list, he is described as Greek villager, and possibly with that name, he may have been a shoo-in for that part. (laughs) Yes, the only person... Uh, with any Greek heritage uh, <laughs> at all. Four Saints, Danger Man, Interpol Calling, uh, The Man from Interpol, The Third Man, uh, what, 216 credits starting in 1930. Mikey. Tony Arpino, it's his second saint. So that kind of wraps it up. In, in terms of tropes, um, there are no blondes. The saint doesn't get locked in a cellar. Old friends don't die. No, police don't turn up at the last minute. It's Saint Trope Light. Roger's is in quite a lot, considering he was uh, directing, directing on the other side of a lens. Yeah. In fact, there are other episodes where there's probably less of Rog and someone else has been directing. So it's um, it was quite interesting. It'll be interesting to um, see how the others pan out. Just a reminder to viewers and listeners um, that if you do want to send in um, any contributions. You can go direct to source because we found out in the episode The Invisible Millionaire, the saint's address in London is 53 Grosvenor Muse. So please forward any communications of Mr. Simon Templar to that address. That would be quite interesting to make that pilgrimage to see if Grosvenor Muse yes, exists. exists. Yeah. And how it relates to other muse addresses, um, because I think Steed lived in a muse. Um, always um, a very trendy place to live in 60s and 70s London. Otherwise, you'd be on a houseboat, wouldn't you? Yes. But yeah, a muse is a very odd word as well. well I think it's where they, the coachman used to live above the horses. Isn't oh, it? right. OK. Um, so they um, said 53 Grosvenor muse. There we go. Unfortunately, right. we don't have a postcode. So what's coming up, Dave? Uh, All right. Okay. Well, um, we've been rattling through these at a fair rate. So we're coming up um, almost to the end now of of the second season. Um, Because um, a next one. Oh, this sounds absolutely charming. um, Is the gentle ladies. 
So that doesn't sound as if there's going to be too much mayhem uh, going on. Although we do have um, Rene Houston and Barbara Mullen um, turning up. And also for, for um, familiar viewers to ITVC or ITC series, Anthony Nichols used to play Tremaine uh, in The Champions. So that looks utterly charming uh, because it says um, The Gentle Ladies. Uh, so that Is looks- it set in an English village? Um, I'd like to hope so. Um, and then after that, splurge on location um, because Simon visits San Francisco um, in The Ever-Loving Spouse, which has um, Barry Jones and our old friend David Bauer again. We're nearly at the end of the second series, and that's the end of the first production block of 39. Yes, yeah. Refer to earlier episodes uh, where we've uh, discussed the nature of production and syndication guy turn to color turns to color in uh, series five. Oh, so we're in the 30s now we've got another 30 or so in black and white and then i think it turns to color after about 78 episodes okay and of course then we'll have to rattle through them because when they get shown on itv4 they show one a day why, Mr. Ambassador, you treat us too well. <laughs> right. Thank you very much for this marathon, Dave. We have been roast into black and white television. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host and resident expert is David Newell. We will be back to discuss more black and white saints and various other things when Dave starts to dip his toe into the world of Sergeant Cork. Yes. Um, who knows what he might come up with. So this has been the review show. Amongst other things, we have been discussing The Good Medicine, The Invisible Millionaire, The High Fence, and Sophia from the second series of The Black and White Saints, which have been on show on Talking Pictures Television. And uh, we will be back with the rest very shortly, I hope. (laughs) 